listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. distillations of complex teachings. We look for ways of simplifying them. We look for um, shortcuts. And this is natural. There's no, no problem with looking for a shortcut. Um, so tonight I'm going to try to give everybody a shortcut. <laughs> Break out your notepads. Um, the <laughs> I once had a teacher who said, he said, because I, I was, took rather copious notes when I was starting the uh, process of, uh, you know, my, my journey. And he said, he said, writing, writing, Michael, it's a bad habit. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, he goes, just let it go. The whole teaching is to let it go. It, it'll, it'll, it'll soak you soon enough. Let the Dharma rain fall. Okay? So I let the Dharma rain fall. Um, so tonight I'm going to try to give you at least a Dharma drizzle <laughs> and see if it's helpful. I'm going to go through uh, just three paragraphs here of uh, some, I think, brilliant prose. It's from a book called Awake, Awake, Awake in This Life. <laughs> um, <laughs> you ever heard of it? Yeah. yeah? Have you bought it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Buy several copies. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is from early on in uh, chapter 2 resistance and if we look at resistance we look at attachment to what is and we want it to be something else this is pretty natural but I go through this, I explain it in three paragraphs and how we can get on the other side of it if we can get on the other side of resistance or if we can get prior to resistance we uh, are meeting up with the end of suffering, which is exactly what the Buddha taught. So in three paragraphs, folks, you're getting... <laughs> well, let's just see how it works. See how it strikes you. Um, I find this to be somewhat, uh, 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 somewhat obviously light, but hopefully useful. So, I begin by saying... When we don't want something that shows up in our lives, we typically do our best to resist it. This resistance can mean that we refuse to accept things that arise in our own experience, or that we manipulate them, or that we fight against them, or that we may even work to destroy any of the causes and conditions that might lead to anything we find undesirable. As we continue our climb, we begin to see that all of our resistance centers itself around a contracted, egoic intention of pushing away what is presenting itself and grasping at what is not presenting itself in order to either force or to avoid a particular outcome. As with any form of grasping, this causes suffering. Yet we all have the tools we need to break this cycle. Every one of us, for instance, can feel our resistance to what's going on in our immediate circumstance if we just tune into it. 
Sometimes resistance is a feeling that arises slowly in our awareness, as might an opinion about some issue that someone has expressed. Sometimes it shows up with amazing speed, as might an evaluation of someone's pre preference of a particular political view or candidate. This was written in 2007, by the way, but anyway. The intensity of our resistance can vary too. Sometimes it's a vague sense of unease, while at other times it is brutal and fierce. Any situation where we might feel resistance arise, however, is a gift in that it shows us in a powerful way exactly what we are unconsciously trying to grasp. Once we can recognize our resistance, we can then bring the powerful energy of our observing presence or witness right into the circumstance. Becoming aware of the witness offers us the chance to be curious about whatever feelings are making themselves known in our experience. With a calm curiosity, we begin to identify not with the contracted feelings of our personal resistance, but rather with the flowing and conscious wonder of simple, impersonal, and boundless awareness. It is exactly in this way that resistance in any and any other feelings of negativity can be surrendered. Once this surrender occurs, there is peace. So what, what kind of brought this up was a conversation I had, uh, oddly, about um, a place I went to this weekend. Um, its, its name is awesome. It's called The Last Bookstore in Los Angeles. It's right downtown. And I went to this last bookstore, um, walked inside, and I have forgo I've forgotten what um, books smell like. And I'm talking books that, like, you, I, I went to the far wall. I just wanted to see what they had with them. So I'm, I was looking in youth books, and I found uh, at minimum six copies of each and every single Hardy Boys mystery <laughs> by F.W. Dixon, who actually wasn't a person, but still, let's just pretend. Um, and I was able to pull these books that I had read and look at them, and by golly, they were, you know, printed and in mint condition from 1953 that someone had decided to give away and the last bookstore uh, picked them up and there's some beautiful sculpture in it. Uh, uh, just, it was just a fabulous experience and I, I had this discussion with someone about it and I could tell that as much as I loved it, this idea of books on paper, <laughs> um, where if you like the passage you can turn back the page and read it again. Um, it's a really cool thing. Um, I got in a very, very uh, uh, interesting discussion with someone who kind of went the other direction and says, man, it's all digital. And, you know, you're just a dinosaur. Now, the person happened to be at the peak of 20-something um, arrogance. At 20, 22, they weren't out of college quite yet. And I know that they're going to get their ass handed to them later. Um, but still... I indulged the, uh, the dialogue and so forth. And who cares about the smell of a bookstore? And I, was, oh, I started feeling a little, hang on, you know? But what a perfect opportunity to kind of start witnessing my resistance patterns, you know? Because I, honest to goodness, in that, in that dialogue, I started thinking to myself, oh, these poor kids. 
And then I immediately went, you're old, McAllister. <laughs> Man, you are, what just happened? You are really, god dang. Um, all of this in a fairly innocuous way started to present itself at light speed. But for any of us, we can begin to practice with any of these resistance patterns as a way of freeing ourselves from what is otherwise egoic clinging. So in the final paragraph here, I'll, I'll describe this in maybe a way that, that makes more sense. Has anybody ever had, um, while they're meditating, an itchy nose? Okay. Never? Okay, yeah. Didn't think so. Well, if you do, what a gift this is. And I'll go on to describe it. Don't itch it. Practice not itching. Okay? If you're feeling like, oh, well, I think I'm going to shift my weight just because I'm feeling it. Try not shifting weight. Try really sitting still. So let me, let me explain here. One simple way to practice this recognition of resistance is to simply observe any distraction while you are meditating. Maybe your neighbor is making noise. Maybe the family pet wants your attention. Maybe your knees hurt. Maybe, or maybe your knees hurt. Any distraction will do. First, recognize the situation at hand. For our purposes, we will look at one of my early obstacles to practice the, quote, itchy nose scenario, unquote. Notice the extent of the itchiness. Notice where exactly the itch is. Notice the fullness of the entire experience. After this full embrace of the itch, recognize the resistance you might have to it. Notice the impulse to do something about it. Notice just how much you want to reach up and alleviate the itch. Notice especially how you might begin to feel about not doing anything about the itch at all. Notice your resistance to the stillness, to this teaching, to everything that asks you not to indulge your habitual tendency to scratch your nose. Explore with deep curiosity everything that is coming up in relationship to your itchy nose. Then let this curiosity guide you to release all that is resisting the itchiness. Notice with patience and wonder how the energy of the itch eventually diminishes with each breath. Notice how the itch fades from the forefront of your experience into the background. Notice the release of the itch entirely, how it disappears as you recognize, resist, and eventually release the itchiness of your nose. While this example is a relatively easy point of practice, over time we find that the technique can be applied any arising annoyance. I believe this is an opportunity. Every time we sit, it's an opportunity to practice this very technique. If it's not an itchy nose, what is it? What's troubling you? What's getting in your way? What do you feel is kind of locking you up a little bit? What's annoying you? If you're feeling like there's no annoyance, if you're feeling like there's nothing getting in your way, the chances are that you've relinquished clinging to anything in particular, and you're open. Something might come up that you'll, you'll latch on to immediately, but training ourselves to become highly in tune with what this is and when it shows up is the first part of the work, the recognition. And if you recognize and then you can resist it and you can feel that resistance, you can also then release it by being curious about what that resistance might be. That's 
the basics of deep, authentic, spiritual work. And we tend to miss that. We think it's something else, something maybe more special, something more. Well, it's not to say that it's not special, but it's actually really ordinary. The outcome of this very ordinary work is anything but ordinary. Really amazing things can kind of come out of this systematic release. And so as a way of opening to all things, we come at that opening from a place of letting go, of resisting. So my, my hope for everyone is that tonight, that you have the itchiest noses imaginable <laughs> and that you don't do anything about them. Let them itch. Let whatever it is be there. Okay? And practice staying with it. Practice getting curious about it. Practice witnessing the experience as opposed to being caught by the experience. In so doing, you are freeing yourselves from the bondage of that experience and the simultaneous bondage of habitual patterning that every one of us tends to go through. You're busting a habit, and the habit is to just immediately indulge. Try not doing that just for 30 minutes, and then afterwards, if the nose itches, by all means, feel free, scratch away, okay? But just during the meditation, give it a shot. See what happens. See what comes up. And then get curious about that. Everybody ready? Let your attention come inward. Become aware of your breath, the ceaseless expanse and contraction of your body in order to take care of itself, in order, in order to sustain this experience. Become aware of the sounds in the room. The hustle and the bustle of life. The magic of that. The pressure of that. The ability for the next 30 or so minutes to take a break from that. Become aware of thought, memories, judge, judgments, or plans. Recognize, witness those memories, judgments, and plans. Witness your sense of the exterior. Witness 
the feelings in the body, the physical sensation. And know that the witness of these experiences, all of them, is not bound by them. These things arise within awareness. They arise within the witness. Be that expanse. any of us on the path is this recognition of two styles of kind of kind of living one is open one is closed where one is um, uh, one is expansive and one is contracted egoic living is contracted um, non-egoic living is expansive or small self contraction big self uncontracted okay um, and we get into some really interesting struggles because the big self doesn't articulate the small self does the big self doesn't so the way we get to the big self is by taking small self articulations that point how to get there but then we have to expand into that on our own the ego authors that journey, but then lets go of the words at some point. And I refer to this repeatedly as kind of like, you remember when you started learning to read? I struggled uh, as a young reader. Um, I could identify the alphabet and I could, you know, do, do uh, you know, interesting intellectual acrobatics, but I was just not a very good reader. I had problems with coding. And what became very interesting was over time, at, with practice, and I had to practice more than some of the other kids, but with practice, I soon forgot about the alphabet and started reading words. And the words started to make sentences, and the sentences started to make paragraphs, which were these chunks of meaning that I could start to internalize. It was like this click. And it happened a little later for me than other, other kids, but it still it, it happened with practice. Similarly, we get to a point where the ego is kind of, we get on the other side of it, just like we get on the other side of the alphabet. We can always come back to it, especially when we're teaching other people, we get very much in touch with it. But we can come back to it but eventually we all forget the letters. We all forget about the alphabet and instead are reading um, uh, or internalizing information in a much greater clip. One of the people, that I, it's, it was always fascinating to, me watch, to watch him read. I, I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass him, but my stepfather, Skip, boy, <laughs> um, 
he could, I could watch him fly over a page and keep and he could just keep um, and and then I'd ask him questions about it, thinking there's no way that I could no. And I'd ask him, well, actually, what was said was and then verbatim, verbatim, verbatim. It's like okay, that's weird. Um, but I was very kind about it. Instead of saying that's weird, I said ah. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then he would say to me, Genius is tough, McAllister. <laughs> Thanks, Hoyt. <laughs> anyway, with this idea, once we get to the place where we can kind of, we have a big self orientation, we're witnessing our experience as opposed to being caught by the small self experiencer. You know, instead of being caught by experience, we are curious about it. And the minute we can kind of rest in that place and kind of stabilize that, is the minute we have kind of fallen into this awakening where wisdom of singularity, wisdom of this great expanse, where everything arises within this great expanse, can then come back home into that smallness as compassion. Okay? So compassion is activity that is consciously sourced from that grand expanse. Now, we can have egoic compassion, which is the norm. Egoic compassion looks like, oh, be nice to that person over there. Trungpa Rinpoche, who had his problems, also, I think, had a great teaching on this. And he called it, uh, he said there are two kinds of compassion. There's, a, there's true compassion, and then there's idiot compassion. So, just for giggles, we're going to go over idiot compassion first, because I think everybody can recognize this, not only in ourselves, but in other people. Idiot compassion looks like, oh, you... You're uncomfortable. You're, you're a heroin addict and you're uncomfortable. Let me give you some heroin. That's the nice thing to do, right? No, it's not. That's idiot compassion, okay? Idiot compassion is enabling the ego or the self by doing good, by being generous, by fighting for what's right. Now, every ego in this room ought to have just pulled the e-brake right there. Wait, 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 what? We have narratives, we have stories that our egos have authored about doing what's right, about being good, about you know, giving because giving is, is, is good to that person. That's what, that's what we should do. Well, on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, that comes from a deeply egoic place. I am giving to them because they are suffering and I am not. Whereas there's this subtle difference if we go into true compassion, it's I am giving because they are me. Do you understand the difference? The realization that we get from this grand expanse when we go from the contraction to the expansion, from closure to openness, is 
that's me. Everything I see is me. It's all arising within my awareness, therefore it all arises within me. That person struggling there, that homeless person, that addict, that abused person, that abuser, is part of this experience. What's the most generous thing I could do, therefore, in this moment to care for the situation? What is the appropriate response? And indeed, it might be to give. But it's not coming from a place of, I'm in here and they're out there, must suck to be them. Instead, it's, we are one. And that true compassion is the dismantling of ego. It doesn't mean ego doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't mean we can't use it as a tool, because it is. And it's an effective one in many cases. But it means that we create some space. We create some distance. Instead of being locked into the situation that's right in front of us, we can see it from a higher altitude. And this takes practice. This discernment comes with meditation. It comes with stillness. It comes from practicing with that witness. As our nose itches, right, we start to begin to see that anything, any disturbance, any person that shows up, that takes us out of this rather natural state of grace and ease that we typically find ourselves in when we rest in and as the big self, anything that takes us out of that is comparatively small. I love the, the line from, I forget his name, forgive me, uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. By the way, it's all small stuff. You know? We really do kind of get a sense of this. That it's all small stuff. Now, added together, especially if you believe people's narratives about small stuff, it can become big stuff real quickly. And the practice is to begin to see through that egoic storyline, whether we've authored it or we have co-authored it with others. Some of you may be familiar with a group narrative that you might be part of. You always want to be careful of this. If you hang out with those that only are talking like you're talking, you don't get a very clear sense of maybe what reality is like. We could run into that problem here, actually, in this organization if we're not careful. One of the cool things about the, the practice that I engaged in um, as Buddhism is that it wasn't very much of an ism. That may sound funny, but there, there, wasn't, uh, there, there, there wasn't really a, a group, in my view, that were true believers. There were, however, true practitioners, true doers. And that always made more sense to me. You didn't have to believe anything. You just had to practice and then question. You had to practice not itching your nose. No matter what, metaphorically, that nose or that itch looked like. You just kept going. And that was cool because it could mean that I sat next to, in one of my practice periods, a Dominican. Dominican uh, 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 member of the Brotherhood. So his whole tradition was Christian, and yet 
he worked with me on an entire practice career uh, at, uh, at the Zen monastery. And that was fine. Uh, no problem. And our conversations were quite interesting at the uh, uh, dinner table because it deepened his Christianity. One of the great Buddhist scholars is Father Thomas Merton, I think. And if you haven't, if you haven't read anything of what Thomas Merton has written, please do. Um, he comes at the world from a decidedly Christian perspective, but is trained as a Buddhist monk also. Neat stuff, you know? And uh, yet again, further, um, uh, a, a, an even bigger and broader opportunity for any of us to recognize that you don't need anything other than what you got right now to practice with a full and complete heart and mind in this work. So that you can kind of come to this idea of what is idiot compassion what is not? We don't want to be idiot, idiot compassion. And by the way, wisdom, idiot wisdom, is called intellectualism. I happen to be in favor of intellectualism. I happen to live a great deal of my time in my noggin because it tends to work better than most parts of my body. Okay? It doesn't make it the orientation or the place of spiritual orientation at all, though. It can't be. You have to be able to let go of that. And you have to be able to let go of what you think love is or should be, what compassion should or should not look like. You have to be able to let go of all your definitions, intellectual and felt sense and everything in between, and experience life from a level of not knowing. One of the great, uh, great quotes from St. John of the Cross, Christian mystic, he says, if a man wishes to be sure of the road he treads on, he must close his eyes and walk in the dark. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, on, on some level. Try it out for yourself. Maybe you can find a way. If you can, shine that light, man. You know? Your turn to sit up front. <laughs> anyway, I think that... Uh, we cultivate this discernment through the practice of meeting this deep singularity with our entire awareness, our entire being. And we do that as often as we can each week. We don't overdo it. We don't underdo it. We find that middle way for us and practice there. And then keep leaning. My teacher's teacher, Suzuki Roshi, used to be very fond of that, um, that uh, verb, to lean. You know, um, and I heard this great line, which is one of my questions. My teacher asked him, evidently, um, so the rumor goes. Um, I asked my teacher, well, yeah, okay, if everything's perfect as it is, then what the hell are we doing uh, fighting this particular war, this Gulf War One? And because, and I came at it, believe it or not, this is going to surprise some of you. If you have, if you have a country that invades and destroys the sovereignty of another country, do you do you step up? Especially if it's you know controlling a, a, you know close to ten percent of the global oil supply, Would, do you do anything? You do nothing. And and uh, uh, so my teacher, of course, told, he said, you know, it's really interesting. That's the question I asked my teacher. The question I asked him um, was, well, if everything's perfect as it is, then why do we do anything? And evidently Suzuki's response was, well, things are perfect as it is, things, plural, as it, singular, is. But we like 
to continue to lean. Meaning we're leaning in a particular direction. We're leaning towards peace. War is never a good option. Depending on your egoic narrative. Is war ever an option? I think it would depend where you sit. And being able to open ourselves to that a little bit and yet still lean towards peace becomes a very, very difficult task. Especially if you're like me, you know, I kind of grew up with a leopard-leaning sensibility. It's like, war? No, 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 no. No. And yet, I know for a fact that had I faced, and this is in retrospect, and I say this as a historian, had I been in a position to enlist in certain circumstances in certain countries throughout history, I bet I would have. This becomes a really interesting thing for any of us to consider. At what point do you fight back? At what point do you feel threatened? At what point do you take the egoic, contracted sense and move with that? And can you take the expansive sensibility and have it inform that contracted sense so that you can make a generous response for all concerned? This complicates things. And it keeps the practice very, very interesting. It also, I should say, is absolutely critical for us to look at practices like this and recognize that they were totally tied to very strong ethical um, norms and expectations. If we, in other words, are coming at the world from this giant expanse, from the deep singularity, and we don't have this sense of discernment about what that really represents or what it means, then we can run into the disaster zone of, well, then if nothing is here, then nothing matters. And that's really dangerous. That's exactly why there are precepts built in and woven into this work, which says, do no harm. So how is it that we move in, into the world and do no harm? Normally, we meet uh, 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 unconsciousness with unconsciousness. Best example I can think of recently um, have been the, the, the comments that I have heard and even myself have thought in relationship to what's going on politically. Meeting very unconscious tweets with very unconscious responses that I've churned and burned in my head. Well, I should just... What a... Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know? It doesn't mean that, that isn't, it isn't natural to get caught by those things. That is natural. What is unnatural is to be able for them to go through us and still meet the situation with wisdom and compassion, not idiot compassion not idiot wisdom, but rather a sense of the deep singularity and how to bring that deep, deep singularity into the many, into the myriad, into the mess. Doing so consistently, doing so grounded in a practice, doing so recognizing 
that the most important, most generous thing we can do is to do no harm, and that we're always leaning into that, that's how we move mountains. That's how we shift our gear personally and collectively. We can shift things culturally. And I believe time is right for that. The big secret is the time is always right for that. We always, we always have that chance to declare peace. We always have that chance to meet whatever's showing up that is not feeling so peaceful. We can begin to meet it with what is peaceful. Again, this is hard to do. This is like the biggest, baddest itch on our nose, perhaps. Can we get curious about it? Can we practice with the big itch? <laughs> <laughs> In this case, I'm defining the global situation as one big, giant itch. That's a new one for me here at Infinite <laughs> Smile. Nonetheless, I think it kind of applies to what, what it is we've been discussing. We recognize it. We recognize our resistance to it, then we release. And from that release, we reintegrate. So as confusing as this may be or may feel, it's an incredible opportunity for each and every single one of us. We get to practice with this. We get to practice with our world, as it is. And with that practice, we get to lean. Which direction are you going to lean? How are you going to lean? How are you going to meet the world as it is? And without getting caught by it, or by a scenario, or by a comment, or in my case, by a tweet, can you still meet it continually? without fail, like water on stone. I don't have an answer for you. That's where you get to play. <laughs> Got about 10 minutes if anyone wants to uh, uh, offer up a, a question. See if I can if I can answer it. Yes, Janet. By the deep singularity? So, every time we look up at the stars, we're looking at the deep singularity. The universe itself, which if you break it down, uni, one verse, song, one song, that deep, that one symphony. And so rather than it being individual, it is both collective and big individual. Okay? Now, I don't know how the infinite 
I mean, by definition, it doesn't have a boundary. I don't know that we can tell. Um, but I don't know that it's that important. I'll share with you, I was at uh, Griffith Observatory this weekend. It was supposed to be clear above Los Angeles. It wasn't, but still. Um, it, it was, it was the, the coolest thing going back to this place. I hadn't been there since I was four. So it was 49 years ago. And I can still remember the, uh, walking around the, around the outside of the, the, the big dome. And I remember that as a, as a very young person. And then I remember going off to the side, you could see the telescope that they still have open publicly seven to nine on Tuesdays or something like that. A giant telescope that you, know, you can look through. I remember looking, looking at it through the glass and thinking, that's, that's the invitation to, to kind of reach for that expanse. We are cells that are made up of atoms that are made up of subatomic spin. But mostly, you and I both know this, we're space. Just like out there. So that through line, that substrate of who and what we are, is we are space. In Buddhism, we call it emptiness. Um, where there is no, there's no content. We are mostly made up of no content. And that singularity is still a part of us. And we are a part of it. I hope that clarifies things a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Do I see a hand? No? Okay. Hannah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Christian You're not alone. <laughs> so I guess my question is. <laughs> so wait a minute. I just want to get this clear. Yeah. I'm picking this name out of thin air, but like maybe Trump is easier to deal with than someone close. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so I guess my question is, I find I, well, this is my question. I find that I. I take refuge in maintaining my well-being, mm -hmm. literally like food and sleep and things like that, and focus a lot on that to create sort of a floor to operate from. But then sometimes it turns into more of a rest, like maybe I'm leaning on it too much and I disappear. Disappear from the relationships that are closest to me because I'm just trying to hold it together. So how? And stop! Stop! Stop right there. What was that word you just used? To to do what together? To to hold it. Yeah. Stop that. <laughs> I'm not trying to be trite. No, I'm not trying to be flip. That's it. Because what we do is when we're seeking refuge, we have to be careful how we use that, that word because seeking refuge oftentimes means I'm hiding. Mm -hmm. 
And there, there's something really important about that, that notion, and that is there needs to be an I that needs to feel threatened so that it can hide. That's the delusion. That's the fundamental essence of why the Buddha sat under the tree and said, I am not moving until I figure this one out. There's still this I, what the heck, right? So as long as we're seeking refuge as a way of insulating ourselves from the toil, tribulation, tests, like the alliteration there, um, of the world, right? As long as that's in play, we got more to practice with. That's what you've articulated beautifully, is the subtle art of egoic clinging. You know? And so my recommendation would be follow the other impulse that you have at play right now, which is you're recognizing it. And if you're recognizing it, you're already at step one. You're already, and now you can explore, oh my gosh, I'm resisting, right? And the, 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 the point here of this talk is that next step, which is, huh, all right, I gotta meet this with every bit of my being, with curiosity, with wonder. And I'm, I'm not gonna try to write another story about this one. File it so that I can deliver it on stage again. Ego can convince the entire audience of, of its rectitude. Instead, we just meditate in that moment. Be with it. Doesn't mean you have to do anything with it, but it does mean recognition of it and getting curious of where it hits and how it hits and so forth is gonna give you an ample supply to work with in terms of remedying the situation with generosity to self and other. And that remedy is change. Change will occur. May not be what you thought it was gonna be, but change will occur as long as you can meet it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, now forget everything I said. Let it go. Good, good. <laughs> Got time for one more. Anybody wants to uh, throw something? Yes, Lindsay. So you spoke of the meeting of consciousness and consciousness. I do that when I find something very difficult to sit with and be with. And then I go to the, well, I'm not going to value that because it's unconscious or unawoken. I think one of the ways of looking at this is we are, we are a lack of awakening mm -hmm. is everywhere, right. including within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And no matter how awake we find ourselves on the path, if it's a self that's finding itself awake, that's danger zone. Oh, wow. Okay? 
A self that finds itself awake is an enlightened ego, which is slightly more tolerable than an unenlightened ego, but not by much. <laughs> Except unen unenlightened egos find them to be absolutely intolerable. They're a total pain in the ass. Um, other enlightened egos hate them even more than, uh, uh, enlightened egos hate them more than unenlightened egos because now they look at them as competition. Oh, he thinks he knows so much. Right. Oh, he's awake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So instead, what, what we want to do is be really careful about who's pointing at who. And if there is any directional pointing, there is delusion. Okay. Because pointing has to come from a position, right? Like a form of... Uh, yeah, right. right. Thanks for coming tonight. Good thing. <laughs> any announcements? The uh, website, so that you know, um, has... I believe at this point all 350 podcasts back searchable. So that's kind of cool. Um, we are still working on linking it completely with iTunes and integrating it totally with uh, uh, Facebook, but that's to come. Um, we're very excited about the fact that, uh, that the geniuses at Power Up Productions have, uh, have gotten us back up. So at infinitesmile.org, you'll find a, a, a new site. Uh, Again, the generosity of uh, Sharla. I know that uh, several of you in this room have also contributed to making sure that that happened. Um, I'm so thankful, and I know everybody else is. It's a, it means a great deal. And I think one of the things that Sharla was so adamant about, she goes, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, rather than go anonymous on this one, she's really cute about it, rather than go anonymous on this one, no, let it be known. And let it be known that all of us can work together to make all of this even better by how and what we give, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's spirit to the practice, whatever it is. And I thought that was really beautifully said. In the spirit of dana, the Buddhist tradition of giving, uh, I think it really embodies it um, in kind of a cool way. So thank you to her and to everyone else who, who is in this room that kicked in uh, an extra few, uh, few pennies. Um, uh, actually, there weren't pennies, they were hundreds of dollars, but still, uh, that, that was a, it was a beautiful gift for the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, st <laughs> oh, well.